Good morning. Grateful to see you all again this morning. If you happen to be just joining us today, this is week four of a four-week series in which, as a church, we are exploring together some of the implications, the reasoning for uh, announcement about change in our tradition as a church uh, four weeks, four or five weeks ago, in which we announced that uh, going forward, starting rolling in over the next two or three years, that uh, the eldership of the church would no longer be um, male only, uh, but would welcome women into those roles. And given that that's a significant change of the tradition of our church, We've tried to put in place a lot of opportunities to think about this, talk about this, discuss this, study this. And as I said, this is week four of this particular class. Uh, there'll be other opportunities that'll come up in the fall if you wanna dig into further study, uh, further script, scripture study, uh, perhaps some book studies. I'm not sure what all's gonna be planned as of yet, but that'll be rolling in likely starting this fall. So you can look for more opportunities to do that as you might wish. Uh, JB asked me to announce that starting next week, they'll resume the normal teaching schedule. I think there's two weeks remaining of the uh, current term that we're in. So you can go back to those normal classes that you've been doing uh, starting next week for those next two weeks. Reminder that uh, there's a resource page that gives you a lot of information about the material that we've discussed, a lot of material that we haven't discussed, further reading that you can do. There are videos of Josh's sermon series there. There's videos of this class there, uh, some interviews, books, articles, and so forth that are there for you for further study. So we've covered a lot of ground, and we have a lot of ground we're going to try to cover today as well. And, but, but before I get into that, the first thing I want to say is just I want to thank you all for the kinds of feedback that you have given. And I... As a, as a teacher, for, you know, for my career as a teacher, one of the greatest uh, compliments one can get as a teacher is simply feedback, that people care and that people are engaged. And one of the, you know, as a college professor, one of the things I love in my classroom are people who disagree when they, when they can ask good pointed questions about why they disagree. And so we've had people that agree, people that disagree, but the spirit of the responses, the spirit of the feedback has just been so generous and so gracious and so productive and fruitful and kind and loving that uh, I want to thank you all and compliment you all. And uh, it's another marker of one of the beautiful things about this church is that we can talk about hard things and we, we try to do it with care. We try to do it with intellectual vigor. And uh, that's another thing I've said for years about the one thing I love about teaching at Otter Creek Church when I teach Sunday school classes is that you know, there's a lot of smart people sitting around. And uh, with a lot of smart people sitting around, that means we all get sharper, right? We all get, we get sharper, iron, as iron sharpens iron. So it happens in the life of this church when we together come together, study, grapple, give feedback, and engage one another. So I want to thank you for that. Uh, today, quick, uh, we're going to agenda for today, quick review uh, of, of some of the things that we've done so far. Uh, then we're going to talk about um, the notion of headship, which is very important in, the, in this conversation. Then we're going to talk about the text of 1 Timothy 3, and then we're going to address as many questions that have been submitted as possible. We can't get to all of them um, because um, last week a whole lot flowed in 
uh, but we're going to try to address as many of those as we can at the end of our time together today. So first on the quick review, one of the things that I've been suggesting to you is to think about the notion of trajectory and the notion of story. And I gave this example from uh, the Old Testament, starting with Deuteronomy 23.1, no eunuch is allowed into the assembly of the people of God. Seems a very straightforward, very flat rule. Here it is, simple, straightforward, there it is. But then along comes Isaiah 56, and it, all of a sudden it seems to change the story because Isaiah, the prophet, will say, in the coming day, a eunuch will be welcomed into the household of the people of God. So the, the flat line of the narrative goes away. And we say, well, what, what's, what's going on here, right? It is no, and it's someday maybe. And then along comes Acts chapter 8, where explicitly we're told that the Ethiopian eunuch is welcomed into the people of God and is baptized into the household of God. So what happens then is not a flatline story. It's a, it's a changing trajectory. It goes from here to there to there. And if you take any one of those texts in abstraction from the other, you miss the whole of the story. It's important to try to figure out where is the story going. This is the notion of trajectory. Another example that we have you of this from 2 Corinthians 8, where Paul is telling the people in Corinth that he wants them to take up a collection and give it uh, to the help the people who are suffering under famine in, in the Jerusalem church. As we noted in looking at that text, right, he doesn't give them a rule. He doesn't say give 10%, give 20%. He says, in effect, this is what God did. God who was rich became poor for your sakes. And then he said, so you live like you believe that story is true. And now do something for the church in Jerusalem. All right, so it's a sort of narrative approach is saying we believe this story is true. So what does it look like for us to live faithfully and creatively in our time and our place as if we believe indeed that that story is true? So then, well, what is the story line? with regard to men and women in scripture. And we said that in Genesis chapter two, Genesis one and two, you get, a, you get a good creation. And in Genesis two, you have mutuality of men and women. Um, one is not created to serve the other. She's not created out of the foot of man, nor is she created to lord authority over the other, out of the head of man. She's created out of the side of man, created in mutuality. But then in the, after the so-called fall in Genesis three, what you see is the, uh, sort of pointing toward patriarchy as a mark of the fall. Patriarchy comes as, as death comes into the story. Patriarchy comes as a sort of perversion of work in the story. That patriarchy is a result of the fall. And then we see as well in the prophets that they will anticipate. For example, Joel 2, very important text for Christians. Joel 2 says, in the coming day, God will pour out God's spirit upon sons and daughters. That is the prophetic gifts that Moses has said, oh, that all my people would be prophets, that all God's people would be prophets. And what happens in Joel 2 is Joel anticipates very, the very same thing that Moses wanted to happen, that the spirit would be poured out, poured out upon all. And then uh, Acts 2, we'll talk about it in a moment, that's precisely what happens in Acts 2, right? But in the Gospels, you see Jesus going out, Jesus engaged with ministry with men and women, women very importantly involved in the life and work of Jesus' ministry. Acts chapter 2 then is going to point to that very same thing that Joel pointed to, that God's spirit is poured out upon all men and women, people from every tribe, tongue, and land, and the gifts of God's spirit poured out upon the church. Then this is what things like um, Galatians, well, let me mention Galatians first. 
Then in Galatians 3, we've found a very key text, Galatians 3, 27, 28. Paul is going to say, now all who are in Christ are one in Christ. And he points that the salvific work of God takes all of the dividing factors of ethnic identity or superiority and says, now those are all leveled and we are now one in Christ. There's no longer Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male and no male and female, but all are one in Christ. That the salvific work of God is a sort of pointing us toward mutuality, pointing us towards equal honoring of, a sort of equality before God. Ephesians then is going to point in Ephesians chapter 4 to the pouring out of God's spirit on the church in the gifts that are given to men and women in the life of the church. There's no gendered pronouns in Ephesians 4. Similarly, in Romans 12, another place where you get a list of the gifts God pours out upon the church, there's no gendered pronouns in Romans chapter 12. It's poured out upon the life of the church. And then in Romans 16, what we get explicitly is Paul honoring various men and women who have key roles in the work of the church, somewhere between 8 and 10, because sometimes the names are are ambiguous. Um, A minimum of 8 women, according to some scholars, maybe as many as 10, according to others, uh, where women are honored, one for being an apostle, one for being a deacon, and so forth, having significant roles in the life of the church. And so what we have in this trajectory is created in mutuality, fall into patriarchy, an anticipation of a different way, and then that different way increasingly being made manifest in the trajectory of Scripture and in the life of the early church. So this is what we mean by a narrative reading of Scripture. Let's make sure, in other words, that we make the main thing the main thing. How does the main story determine our readings of particular texts rather than just picking a text here, going back to the, to the eunuch thing, right? Rather than pulling out the Deuteronomy text and saying, well, here's what it says. Instead, how do we look at the whole trajectory? And so in other words, it's really important to hear this not as a taking scripture lightly, but it's taking scripture more deeply, more importantly, more prioritized by trying to let scripture set the agenda for our reading rather than letting us bring our own presumptions and assumptions and lenses to the text and saying, well, this is what it says without saying, well, this, this is what it says. That makes sense? Okay, so... Um, Quick last week, some quick reminders about Paul's letters. When we're looking at the New Testament texts, super important to remember this stuff. One, that these are so-called occasional letters, that what you get from Romans, uh, Romans on in Paul's letters is that these are letters written to a particular place and context that are occasioned by something that has occurred. So it's an occasional letter. He's not doing systematic theology. He's instead writing a letter to a church. These letters were not written to us. As some scholars say, they were written for us, for the church, but they were not written to us, right? Um, Remember the metaphor of a telephone call. One way to think about what you're doing when you're trying to interpret scripture is it's like listening to one side of a telephone call. You're just getting to hear one side. 
You don't know what the other person's saying back on the other side. Um, and so you can often and easily misconstrue what's going on by bringing your presumptions to your listening, right? And so it's important for us to always keep that with us. Uh, the third thing here about Paul's letters is that given what we just said, point one and point two, that when you read New Testament scholarship, um, in my mind, a lot of the good ones will often say, so maybe this means, or perhaps this means, or perhaps the background is. That's, again, not a mark of obfuscation. It is a mark of humility before the text that we have been given. It's a mark of trying to take seriously the kind of text we have in Scripture. It's not a mark of disrespect for the text. Uh, last quick review uh, for interpretive strategies we've, that we've talked about. We spent a lot of time talking about the first week, the so-called regulative principle that we inherited from Alexander Campbell, that uh, his desire to unite all Christians, the divided Christian world, was to say, can't we go back and look at the New Testament and just do what they did in the New Testament? Uh, but it turns out that's not quite so simple as it sounds at first, right? So you say, well, how do we do that? And he says, well, you do it through the regulative principle. And the regulative principle is, if, it, if it's something that we're given an approved uh, a command or an approved example or a necessary inference, then you, you can do that. If you don't have that, you can't do it in church, right? So it says in Ephesians, sing and make melody in your hearts into the Lord. It does not say play. So you can sing, but you cannot play. Similarly, when you think about 1 Timothy 3, what does it say? It says men, elders. But again, today we're going to talk about that. It actually doesn't say that, but King James says that. It says men as elders. It doesn't say women. So you can have men, but you can't have women. So the regulative principle. Another one that we've talked about uh, last week is that the way some people approach some of the texts, some of these difficult texts from Paul, is simply to say, well, Paul's wrong. You know, Paul's wrong. So we don't have to give any attention to this. I'm not, I'm not particularly comfortable with that. Um, and it's, that's not the tack that we're taking in this particular uh, discussion. Third, so, third sort of interpretive strategy is that Paul is accommodating. That is, Paul has an agenda, which is the proclamation of the gospel throughout the world, and because he has a, his agenda is to proclaim the gospel throughout the world, he won't take time to deal with certain issues in ways that we might want him to. He, so he accommodates them. So the big example here is his discussion of slavery, right? So he'll, he'll tell slave masters how they should treat their slaves as unto the Lord, right? Um, and he'll tell slaves how they ought to obey their masters. Now, from our perspective... 20, early 21st century, we would think, no, 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 Paul. No, that's not, no, that's not the right thing to say. Um, but from his, from his what the, Paul's accommodating interpretive strategy is saying is that his desire is to proclaim the gospel. And to overthrow the institution of slavery would take a fundamental reorientation of all sorts of elements of culture and politics in the Roman imperial structure and that's not what Paul is foremost focused on. He's focused on the proclamation of the gospel. And moreover, the advice and commands that he gives to both slave owners and slaves would actually undo the institution of slavery over a long process. So he accommodates it by not coming out and saying, we have to get rid of this right now. He accommodates it by saying, 
subversively obey the gospel, even as a slave owner and as a slave. And we presume, I presume, he, he's thinking this will undo the institution of slavery, but not as a violent revolution would undo slavery. Am I making sense on that? Fourth, fourth possibility here is we want to try to understand Paul within the larger narrative. And maybe he is saying some more interesting things that we think he might be saying at first glance because of the tradition that we have had about reading these texts. Here's one of the questions that got submitted last week that I want to address real quickly in this, in this point. Uh, someone said, it seems we should emphasize common sense interpreting these scriptures and just flat out admit that some do not, not make sense for our time and culture, even if they did in an ancient culture. So, so I'm not sure what this person would say. I don't, I don't know who the question came from. I'm not sure if, if, if they're saying number two or number three, um, but I hear them saying, Lee, you seem to be making a stretch in the way you're talking about these texts, I think is one thing that's presumed there. Um, and so, again, I would, I would say that um, the use of common sense oftentimes turns out not to be so common as we think it is. That usually, uh, very often, uh, our, com- our sense of common sense is very particular and very tradition-bound. And so I think that's the first thing I would want to suggest we be, be careful about, uh, that common sense is often particular and tradition-bound. And so we want to try to dig underneath that. And so what I've been trying to, trying to make a picture of here is that one can see that there's a great deal more openness to mutuality in these texts than our common sense reading has presumed, that the text actually seems to be a, little, a lot more interesting than we presumed by our reading, for example, of the King James Version of these texts. A super quick re- review of 1 Timothy 2, because I hit this really quick last week, but it's a very important text. Um, first, quick parenthetical, as a teacher, I hate PowerPoint presentations with lots of text. They shouldn't, you should never do this. You should never do this. You should use pictures, not words. But this is a very text-based conversation, and so I'm trying to keep us along to, to, and a lot of material, so I'm trying to keep us together with, with too much, too much text. This is First Timothy 2. Um, so here, here we have this sort of, let me just start right here, as in the text that seems to be so important in this conversation, kind of in the middle. Let a, let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She has to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness uh, with modesty. Now, some quick points about this. Uh, in, in our tradition, in the regulative principle, this text has been used to say, um, men teach and women be quiet. Men lead, women submit. Uh, Men are out in public, and women are at home. So that's been the regulative principle reading. Uh, But but the the narrative reading points us to trying to think in terms of the larger narrative, right? That larger narrative arc that we had earlier. And it also pushes us, as any kind of good interpretive strategy does, of always, and and as many in Churches of Christ as well have done, 
is to try to think about context, immediate context of what's going on. And so again, in the context of 1 Timothy, uh, in Ephesus, uh, it's presumed by many that 1 Timothy was written to a church in Ephesus and that there's this sort of arguing and conflict going on, people being deceived by false teaching. And if you presume that as well, that in Ephesus there is also a pagan cult in which the women are the priests and the men are in submission, uh, that, that's an important kind of background element as well in this particular context. So we can then start thinking through some of this stuff and, and as well digging into certain presumptions that we have. So for example, if the, if the text there says um, women learn in submission, right? our patriarchal assumption, if you bring a patriarchal set of lenses to that, you, you presume that means submit to whom? To the men, right? But it had just gotten through the sentence before, just saying full reverence to God. So it's, it tells us a lot about the lenses, our common sense, if you will, that we're bringing to a text when you all of a sudden start picking at it a little bit and saying, well, why do we assume it means full submission, that it means submission to men instead of submission to God? Or um, I permit, permit no woman to have authority over a man. This is, this is a place where I think the King James Version gets at actually better interpretations than we get in some of our more contemporary interpretations. It says, I permit no woman to usurp authority over a man. The word authentane is the word in the original there, and it's a word that typically means domineering authority. Ah, authority. I'm telling you, ah, this is the way it is, authority, right? So in other words, what he's saying is that Paul, Paul, Paul's been arguing not men over women. This is Galatians 3, 27, 28, right? There's no longer men over women. It's this. But if you presume in Ephesus that what's happened is that they've gone from this in the, in the pagan cult from patriarchy to matriarchy, if that's what's going on in the context, then it makes sense for Paul to say, I'm not saying we go from this to this. He's saying, we're saying we're going from this to this. That makes sense? But again, that historical, what's on the other side of the phone call makes all the difference. And there are a lot of scholars that are saying we need to remember that's in the background in Ephesians. And he's using, again, domineering authority language there. Um, silence. The word for silence here is not the same word for silence in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14. In 1 Corinthians 14, we said well, it appears what's going on is there's lots of noise being made in the assembly. And he's literally saying, be quiet. Stop talking out of turn. Here he's not using that word. Here he's using a word that is a, is a sort of reverence. It's a sort of quietness of spirit. It's a sort of, as, as one text is pointed to, a connotation of, of um, welcome hospitality between citizens. It's a sort of reverence and quietness of spirit, right? Um, the creation account. So see, what happens in a lot of the traditional perspective on this is they say, well, Adam was created first, then Eve, and she got deceived. So you can't trust the emotional woman. And I know that's offensive, but that's the way it's been used in the tradition, right? Um, but if instead the concern in the background on the other side of the phone call is that there are people who are getting deceived, and in this case, some women who are getting deceived, then Paul is saying, let the women learn in peace and quiet. 
so they won't be deceived like Eve was deceived. So it's a sort of it's a sort of pointing at you know Adam. Adam had the command straight from God, and he disobeyed. Eve just got deceived. So we don't want that. So let the women learn, so they won't get deceived. And then childbearing, instead of a sort of keep them barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. And again, I know this language is very offensive. But again, I want you to know that this text has been used in that way. It's important for us to know that. I'm going to give you some other examples in just a minute of the way this text has been used that you might not know that it's important to know. But instead, maybe what he's pointing to is he said earlier, he's pointing women towards good works, sort of public good works. And then here he points back to childbearing and childrearing as one of the beautiful good works that women do. Uh, and, and on Mother's Day especially, we're mindful of this, right? The beauty and the hard work of caring children and bearing children and loving and nurturing children. So next slide is um, one potential way then that we might think about paraphrasing this text. Go ahead and pull that up for us. So it might paraphrase it this way. And again, this is a paraphrase, okay? But again, what I want you to be remembering is that we're always paraphrasing it some, in some way in our interpretations of texts. Let the women learn in peace and quiet will full submission to God. I'm not saying that now we want women to lord authority over men. She should maintain reverence and peaceableness. For you remember the creation story? Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived. He, was, he just disobeyed. But Eve, she was deceived, and she became a transgressor. So let her learn too. Yet she will be saved through doing good works, like the beautiful work of childbearing, characterized by faith and love and holiness with modesty. So the idea here is that, again, we always have to be asking, what's in the background? How do we make sense of this? And this is one very plausible respectable way, I think, to think about that particular text. Okay, let's move to one big topic that we haven't talked about yet, and that's the notion of headship. I wish we had a long time to talk about this, but we just don't have, I'm going to have to move through a lot of stuff really quickly, but again, you can come back and listen to it uh, later if you wish. Um, Out of 1 Corinthians 11 and this text out of 1 Timothy 2, there's a common argument that's called the headship argument. And the headship argument is that... uh, that the trajectory that I have painted, created in mutuality and patriarchy as a result of the fall, the headship model says, no, 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 no. It makes the case, the headship model makes the case that there is in creation itself a headship of men over women. That men have been given a sort of spiritual authority over women that's grounded in the creation itself and that it's not a consequence of the fall. So if I were going to argue with me, and, and the stuff that we've been presenting, this is precisely where I'd be arguing, right? This is, it's a really important argument. It's a really important counterpoint. And so let me, let me give you, again, I'm going to have to kind of move through some of this stuff quickly, but let me give you some major considerations that I would suggest you keep in mind as you process that particular counterpoint. First is this. Um, does head actually mean authority over? You get the language of head in 1 Corinthians 11. There's no question about it. It's using the language of head. Um, But even in English, head doesn't always mean authority over, and it doesn't always mean authority over in Koine Greek either. 
because head can simply mean source, right? So when you talk about the headwaters of a river, you don't mean that that creek up there and wherever it is in Minnesota is the authority over the Mississippi River. You just mean that's the source, right? That's where it comes from. And in, in the Genesis story, Adam, the, the Adam, is source of Eve. She's taken from Adam. It doesn't necessarily mean authority over. Next kind of point that some commentators raise is that one way to think about the head and body imagery is simply pointing toward intimacy. There's a, there's a very beautiful intimacy that Paul is pointing to, right? There's head and body. You don't have one without the other. They are both indispensable. They're both always, constantly, one with the other. Not one over, but mutual interdependence. Another major point that gets talked about in this regard is with the doctrine of the Trinity. So in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that uh, as man is head over, that, that Christ is head over man, man is head over woman, and God is head over Christ. So we've got Trinitarian considerations being brought into this. And it's very important to note, for example, that subordinationism, which is the language of seeing Christ as subordinate to the Father, in essence, or ontology, was seen as a heresy in one of the early seven great councils of the church. So the great tradition of the church is to say, there's not subordinationism in essence or ontology between God the Father and Christ the Son. To say so is a heresy. And that should inform as well, I would suggest, our reading of this text. Another sort of uh, consideration that gets raised in this is that some in favor of the headship patriarchy model will take source or headship, source as a technical term here, primogenitor, primogenitor. The primogenitor is this notion that if you come first in the story, you come first in the birth order, then you have authority over the one below. And there are places where you see this, right, um, in inheritance laws and so forth. Um, but um, there's some deep troubles with primogeniture as well. So, for example, um, no, before, I, before I do that, just so you can be clear on how the headship model thinks about this, right? So the idea here is that in Paul, he's saying it was first Adam and then Eve. And since it was first Adam and then Eve, the, the claim of primogeniture says the one that's first has authority over the one that is second. But even in the Old Testament, major elements of the Old Testament, this is seen as it's a, it's a highly problematic claim. So, well, what are some counterexamples to this that might immediately come to mind? You got David, Jacob and Esau, Joseph, you have um, Moses and Aaron, right? Um, that in major elements of the story, it doesn't work that way. Now, other quick considerations about this. Patriarchy is explicitly depicted as a consequence of the fall in Genesis 3. 
Um, as another sort of point of problem, problematizing primogeniture. But here's, here's another major consideration that I want you to think about and that I think is crucial. That is, if we accept the argument, which I'm saying I, I don't think we should, but if we accept the argument that primogeniture or the first created is over the second created, if we accept that argument that it's grounded in creation, not the fall, it's grounded in creation, that this is the order of creation that then points towards spiritual authority. If we argue that it's grounded in creation, then suddenly we find ourselves to have argued ourselves back into a strict and hard patriarchy. No women CEOs, no women as presidents of colleges, no women as university professors, no women as judges, no women as doctors. And you might say, that's crazy. And let me suggest to you, actually, that's what they were arguing in Churches of Christ 150 years ago out of, this, out of 1 Timothy 2. So it's important to have some historical perspective on this. 100 years ago, just 100 years ago, 1 Timothy 2 was being used in the debates about women's suffrage, whether to give women the right to vote, and saying clearly women should not be given the right to vote because of 1 Timothy 2. You know, a lot of, our, our historical perspective is so short that you might forget there was rioting in the streets in this country about whether or not to give women the vote. And in Churches of Christ, 1 Timothy 2 was being used to say, no, of course we should not give women the vote. Uh, look at this next. Um, don't bring it up yet because I want to let me give some background. Um, there was um, a minister, D.G. Porter, American Restorationist Movement minister, in the 1870s, and he was making the case that, um, uh, talking about suffrage of women, whether to give women the vote, and he said that uh, women do not have the right, should not be given the right to vote, and watch, watch his logic, this is going to be kind of tricky, but watch his logic. He says, women do not have the right to vote, should not be given the right to vote, unless you base it upon what he calls in quote, and here's our, here's our text, the absurdest of principles, of all principles, namely subordination at home and in the church, but independence and quality abroad. We call this proposition absurd because it would seem that if woman can be equal to man in authority anywhere, it must be at home and in the church. So in other words, what he's saying is, look, of course you can't give women the right to vote. Because if you give them the right to vote, then you can't argue that they're in submission at home. And we know that's absurd, so it's absurd to give them the right to vote. See what I'm saying? See his logic? It's 1 Timothy 2. Or look at this, another example, in case you think, well, that's just a one-off. Here's another example. R.C. Bell, a famous Stone Campbellite, in uh, his journal, The Way, he says this, woman, go ahead. Yeah, woman is not permitted to exercise dominion over man in any calling of life. When a woman gets her diploma to practice medicine, every Bible student knows that she is violating God's holy law. When a woman secures a license to practice law, she is guilty of the same offense. When a woman mounts the lecture platform or steps into the pulpit or the public schoolroom, she is disobeying God's law. Every public woman 
lawyer, doctor, lecturer, preacher, teacher, clerk, sales girl, and all would then step from their post of public work into their father's or husband's home where most of them prefer to be and where God puts them. So what these brothers were saying is that if you want to argue for headship, which they want to argue for, then they say, you better be consistent about it. And this is what consistency looks like. So this is the, one of the problems I have with the so-called soft complementarianism that's popular these days. And if, you, and if you go digging online and you go looking at stuff and you look, for example, at people critiquing this decision that we've made here, it's going to come from some people that will call themselves soft complementarianism, soft complementarians. And what soft complementarians argue for is they, they want to say women should be given equal place, acknowledgement, use of their gifts in teaching in the church, in being deacons in the church, in serving in the church, but they should never be preachers or elders. And, the difficult, and, and they ground that in this so-called headship model. But the problem with that is that it just doesn't seem to be clear about why you're drawing the line there. You know, what's, what's the difference between standing up here and getting a salary for doing it and standing in a lecture hall in a Christian university and drawing a salary for doing it? Now, what, what's the difference between being a, a deacon and being an elder? What's the difference? And from my perspective, it seems to be a highly arbitrary drawing of a line that seems to lack consistency with the argument that it's trying to make. 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3 is a so-called text about uh, qualifications of elders. Here's the King James Version. Lots of text again. Uh, let's just look at the first couple of verses. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth the good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, and so forth. Okay? Now, from the regulative principle from Church of Christ, right? So the idea there is if, if, a, if a man desires the office of a bishop, he should be this. So there you have it. It doesn't say women. And it can't be a woman because it says husband of one wife. So there it is. So just keep forcing yourself or encouraging yourself to say, regardless of what you do, you've got to deal with the question of whether or not you want the regulative principle to be your way to read this. It says sing, not play. It says a man, not a woman. What's not clear? Right? But note, there's a lot of assumptions going into that question. There's a lot of assumptions going into that question. Um, But it's even more interesting than that. So let's throw up here a contemporary English version, and we could look at a lot of other versions, but let's throw up the next slide, I think it is, uh, the contemporary English version of this text, and see the way they translate this. It is true that anyone who desires to be a church official, King James Version said, if any man desires, it says, if any one desires to be a church official, wants to, they want to be something worthwhile. That's why officials must have a good reputation and be faithful in marriage. That's a very different interpretation, right? 
So the regulatory principle can't get away with this one, right? So here's something you may not know about 1 Timothy 3 in the original. There are no male pronouns in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 8. King James Version says, if any man, the word man is not in the text. It's not in the text. It says, if any one desires. Now, immediately someone's going to rejoin and they're going to say, but it says husband of one wife. So it has to be a man. Well, it does say that. But then we ask, what does that phrase, husband of one wife, mean? Right? Because the literal language is one woman man. If anyone desires to be the work of bishop, that one desires a good thing. Such a one should be a one woman man. And so then we say, well, how do you translate that? So we'll go back to this slide that I gave you a couple of weeks ago about how biblical scholars have translated this in many different ways. Husband of one wife, faithful to their spouse, they'd be faithful in marriage, faithful to his wife, must be married to one wife only, married only once. He must not have more than one wife. So in other words, even that phrase is complicated as far as the translations are concerned. Now again, we can, we can come at it cynically, you can come at it cynically and you can say, well, that's just people with an agenda. That's, you know, that's an important question to raise. Is that it? Or is it that it's complicated and that there's ambiguity and a variety of ways to interpret that particular saying? So to summarize then on 1 Timothy 3, um, a narrative reading then is going is to ask us, um, let's take the whole into account. The whole story of Scripture. And what we see in the whole story of Scripture is mutuality. So then what do we do with 1 Timothy 3? Well, again, to some, there's no male pronouns in the text. Uh, there's one woman man that we're suggesting one plausible way to understand that is as an idiom, right? An idiom is you don't take the words literally. I mean, literally is one woman man. And it's like, well, what does that mean? But uh, idiomatic expression means you don't take it literally. You try to understand it from its cultural context. It's raining cats and dogs is an idiom. We don't look up for cats and dogs falling. We know that that means something in our cultural context, that it's raining really hard. Here you have an idiom, and the question is, what does the idiom mean? That's why it's so complicated in the translation. And then finally, I want to point to, I want to suggest to this, uh, for those of us who have been on Otter Creek for a long time. Because uh, there's been, we've heard a lot of, a lot of feedback from folks who say, look, it, you, this ought not be a conversation because it says husband of one wife. And, it's, and, and there's, a, there's an anxiety among some that you're not taking scriptures here. This signals some sort of moving away from scripture. But again, remember, brothers and sisters, the very next paragraph is about deacons in which both men and women are addressed and being deacons in that paragraph. And moreover, it says a deacon should be a one-woman man. And we decided 15, 20 years ago, I don't remember the timeline, that that doesn't prohibit women from being deacons. So this isn't a new interpretation, different interpretation of one-woman man. It's something that's been in our local church tradition for some number of years. Questions. We should have more time to get more of these questions, but let's do the ones that we can. Um, 
One great question, I really love this question. Um, and and it, come, it came from several different places, so I'm gonna summarize it this way. Is, again, is this a yielding to culture, right? Or uh, God, Hebrew says God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. How then does culture change the meaning of God's will? Again, great question. Hebrews is pointing to the character of God, which he says does not change. But clearly we as Christians know that the particulars or the understanding of God's will changes. That's why we have something we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. It changes, right? Uh, moreover, think about this as far as culture is concerned. If I were to come to church, if I, let's say I'm, I go to the elders meeting next week and I, and I start banging on the table and I say, every Sunday morning I want everybody to stand up and say, Curios Jesus Christos es doxon deu patros. And I say, what are you talking about? Well, that's what Paul says in Philippians 2, 11, that every tongue should confess. Curios Jesus Christos es doxon deu patros. That's what it says. And you'd think I'm crazy. But that's the way we must always remember God's character doesn't change, but culture always is changing. The reason we don't insist upon that in our context is because we don't speak Koine Greek, which is a cultural thing. Cultural translation always is happening all the time. There is no non-cultural witness to the gospel. We believe the gospel is true. Even the most basics, Jesus his Lord, gets borne witness to in different ways depending upon the culture that we are in. The question is not whether we do cultural translation, even with regard to the basics. The question is how well we are doing it. Next, next uh, thing that we got from several folks, and I love this question. Are we dismissing church history and not taking church tradition seriously? Um, first thing I want to note is that this is a very non-Church of Christ thing to say. <laughs> and it's what I gripe at my students about all the time. I say, we Protestants, we just fast and lose with church tradition. And our Catholic brothers and sisters tell us, why don't you take the Spirit of God in the church seriously as if tradition might have something to teach you? And I tell my students that all the time. So I love this question. You know, take church tradition seriously. So I want to honor that. At the same time, we are a restorationist movement church. Restoration Movement Church came precisely in response to this notion that church tradition needs to be challenged. So think about some of the distinctives of our tradition. Um, adult believer baptism, recovery of a priesthood of all believers in which we do away with the notion of clergy, the call to mission and evangelism for every believer, a separation of church and state. Guess what all of those are? That's about 200 years ago when our tradition said, those are things in the church tradition that we believe are wrong, and we're going to try to go back to be faithful to the New Testament. That's in our DNA as well. And, we, and here we are at another such moment where we say we're trying to be faithful to Scripture in this way. Um, man, I wish I could talk about more, but we're out. So let me close with this. Uh, Scott Broadway uh, reminded me of this this morning. In the Christian tradition, Christian faith and practice, we are willing to extend great and oftentimes costly grace 
to even those who have been willfully disobedient and done grave harm to themselves or other people as they show a desire to repent. Yet sometimes we can't show that same grace to people who have very good loving hearts to do the will of God and are grappling to want to know the meaning of Scripture and really are taking seriously the will of God. But somehow we think we can't extend the same grace and love and mercy to people who are grappling and have given their whole lives to do the will of God. And because we disagree with them or they disagree with us, we can't give them that same grace that we say we should give to the immoral or to the unfaithful. And I want to suggest to you, we know that is in the trajectory of the gospel. Love, honor, mutual submission, listening, kindness, mercy. And the thing that has been so beautiful about this last month is I've seen that from so many, many people in this church. And I want to honor you in that and further encourage you in that and say, keep it up, keep at it, keep struggling, keep asking questions, keep having conversations, and keep loving and honoring. Amen. Thank you.